friends. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations about or with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Eric Nevins. It's early in the morning for me, and uh, where whatever you are, whenever you're listening to this, I hope that you are well. Thank you so much for downloading. If uh, you uh, have not yet gone out to iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and left a rating or review for uh, halfway there, uh, please do that. It does help us out, lists us up in the rankings, and lets Apple know that people are listening. So please do that. Today, I'm excited to share our guest. Um, he is a pastor and the executive director at Alabama Interfaith Power and Light, Michael Malcolm. Michael, welcome to Halfway There. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'm excited to chat with you. We met through a mutual friend, and I can't wait to hear your story. You're, uh, you're, you're in Alabama now. Are you... Were you always from, are you from Alabama? No, no. Uh, my wife is from Birmingham, Alabama. I am actually from Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, gotcha. Are you, wait, I can't remember. And maybe I misremembered that. Are you, are you in Atlanta now? So at this present moment, I'm in Birmingham. Oh, gotcha. Um, uh, but uh, I will be in Atlanta in the morning. Is that, but you live in Atlanta. No, I live in Birmingham. Oh, you do? Okay, cool. Uh, I pastor a church in Atlanta. Oh, oh, gotcha. All right. Uh, that, yeah, that's kind of an interesting interesting dynamic. How does that work for you? Uh, typically, uh, I'm, I'm here during the week when I'm not traveling. Uh, and um, on the weekends, I, I go back to Atlanta to go and pastor the church and check on my grandmother, who I take care of. She has uh-huh. dementia. And, and so uh, I make sure that you know uh, everything's in order. Yeah, you're back for her. And forth. And yeah, interesting. Okay, well that's that's good to know about you. It sounds like you have, you care about people. I I typically try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I tend to try. Uh, I, I don't I don't I don't think that you can be a pastor and not care about people. Oh. Uh, I think that's one of the qualifications. It's true, yeah, true enough. Okay. So tell us a little <laughs> more about kind of you and what you're doing right now. And then um, we'll, we'll do some other, I'll ask some other questions. Yeah. So right now um, I am uh, again, the executive director for Alabama interface power and light, um, which was an organization that actually had set uh kind of docile or dormant for uh, about, uh, seven years, and, and uh, the opportunity presented itself. I was the executive director for South Carolina Interface Power and Light, and uh, the opportunity presented itself for me to be able to come to Alabama and join my, my wife and uh, my daughter and, and uh, restart or relaunch Alabama Interface Power and Light, which we've been able to successfully do. One of the initiatives that we're working on right now is the uh, Restore and Eden Project, which deals with North Birmingham. And there's a a, a lot of, uh, of corruption and pollution that has been taking place in North Birmingham for uh, decades. And, and so we're now trying to get the community of faith and the community to uh, embrace change and and fight for their own change uh, to take place uh, by addressing some of these issues that are uh, taking place in their own community. Yeah. Explain to us, because you said you were part of a another group called Interfaith Power and Light, and you said North Carolina, was that right? So yeah. So tell, tell us I'm what sorry, that means. Ahead. Well, no, I was just going to, you're probably going to go in there anyway. Uh, tell us what that means and like why that's important to you. So, so uh, Interfaith Power and Light is actually a nationally organized, uh, national organization. Uh, we deal with communities of faith on um, um, climate change, uh, creation care, um, creation stewardship, and, and energy efficiency. Um, in doing that, we, we are interfaith, meaning that we deal with all faiths, just not just Christianity, um, though I am a Christian. Uh, we also uh, deal with other faiths as well because we realize that it's going to take a collective effort of everybody that has a belief in, in taking care of, of creation, um, being involved in, in, in 
helping to shift the narrative uh, from us being purveyors of creation to actually being those that take care of creation, uh, stewards of creation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important. It's a biblical principle, right? God gives us the earth to to take care of and manage, and, uh, well, we haven't always done a great job at that, for sure. Well, I mean, if you believe in the metaphysical and, and you say that there is a heaven and a hell, then we realize that if we don't take care of what we have here, when the new earth does take place, we're just going to destroy that as well because we think that, uh, that that's the way that we're supposed to do. I think that's, that's what we're supposed mm. to do. Part of, of what drives the, the destruction of, of the environment uh, as well as people uh, is, is the fact that we have this uh, perverse understanding of our role in, in creation. Uh, we somehow have, have uh, usurped God. And, and put ourselves in the place of God, and and so we we and and we have uh, a misunderstanding of of resources, and we think that resources are unlimited, and that what happens to one person doesn't affect me. But the fact of the matter is, um, if the air you breathe, I breathe; the water mm-hmm. you drink, I drink; the food you eat, I eat. And so nobody can escape the destruction that's taken place in our environment or with our environment and in our society. Uh, nobody can escape that. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the whole thing is a big cycle anyway, right? So it all, it all comes back eventually. That's why we have to care about things like what happened in, in Flint and other, other places. Absolutely. So yeah, totally. I'm, I'm on board with that. And I can't wait to hear more about, uh, about how you, this became a conviction, uh, for you, but let's go back. So tell me about uh, your story. You grew up in a Christian family. Um, tell us about what that was like. So I grew up. Uh, I grew up in a, a, a was amongst a, a line of preachers. I, I come from a long line of preachers. Uh, my grandfather was a pretty prominent pastor here in Atlanta, Georgia, or in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, as well as some of my uncles and aunts um, at that, uh, who have uh, graced the pulpits and, and, and have uh, have uh, taught and, and and preached what they say of the Lord. Um, and I also uh, went into that tradition uh, or inherited that call as well. And in so doing. Um, I am the only one in my family that actually went, got formally trained as a, as a pastor. I mean, and I'm the only one that went to seminary, uh, which actually caused some conflict. And, and I still deal with the conflict of this, uh, to oh, this wow. day because, because um, it was often said, you know, that school doesn't call a preacher to preach it. Uh, God calls the preacher. And, and so... Uh, that was a misunderstanding of education because of what they had been taught. Um, they were taught to look down on education, uh, as to say, people that chose to get educated uh, uh, somehow thought themselves better than other people. And, and, and so they had this, this clear misunderstanding of what it meant yeah. to go and get you know, formally trained. Um, and some, uh, honestly, still do to this day. However, uh, others have just genuinely accepted me for who I am, and I embrace those people as well. And uh, and so uh, in my family, uh, I don't really, I honestly don't really have that type of relationship with my family members. Hmm. Uh, I operate in a different circle than they do. Yeah. Well, so tell me about, like, did how did you come to really make your faith your own, you were in this family of preachers, but how did, how did that come to be yours? Honestly, it came through my education. Mm. Uh, my world, my world view was broadened. Uh, I was in the military. Uh, and so I was able to go and I've, I've seen a lot of places back now. I'll say that I've seen some places that people saved their whole life to go and see. Um, uh, and I was able to do that 
you know, I get paid doing it under uh, with the military. Thank yeah. God. Uh, so, I, and seeing other things and other people, uh, that expanded my worldview from that aspect, from an aesthetic aspect. Uh, however, mentally, I still carry that same mentality that I had before. Uh, it was through education. It was through my my deliberative. Which theology. is what? Like what? What was that? What was that mentality? So my my edu- uh, my mentality prior to uh, school, uh, I, I had the mentality that all I had, or all I knew, was all I needed to know. Uh, I had it was a very limited mentality. Uh, I didn't have a problem with women preachers. Uh, I didn't have a problem with uh, different ethnicities and and uh, a color barrier and uh, all of this stuff. That that wasn't an issue for me. Um, the homosexuality was an issue. Uh, being open and affirming was an issue for me. Uh, I had to grow to understand that God loves all, period. Uh, Getting involved and looking into the environmental space and seeing what the greater sin is, uh, Mm. that that space uh, was a space that I didn't need to know existed. We'd already been doing it because of of survival instincts. We learned how to deal with uh, making more out of nothing. Uh, or out of a little than than uh, the other way around because we just didn't have so you know necessity is the mother of invention uh, and so we 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 uh, came up with various ways of being able to live off of and some and to some extent thrive off uh, more than enough uh, but that mentality was a mentality I developed. That wasn't a mentality. Uh, that was a mentality I was instilled with. Sure. But learning the the language of what I was doing and, and learning the uh, other uh, avenues in that uh, was something that I learned later on. Yeah. So, that, so that's, that's what I meant by the mentality. Being able to actually, uh, to sum it up, being able to look out in the world and see in society all that's going on and and, and taking that to God and, and having that conversation with God about what I was seeing wasn't something that I knew how to do prior to going to school. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something I even knew uh, was possible prior to going to school. Yeah. Because I was always taught growing up, you don't question God, you know. Um, you can't talk to God. Oh, that's interesting. As as, as you would talk to God, uh, as I'm talking to you. What? You know, these, these, I'm well, sorry. What did that do for you? Like, how did that shape who you saw God as? Well, I mean, when when you're when you've grown up, and and this is what you've been taught your whole life, it did nothing for me, but instilled in me this is the way God is. You know, it wasn't until again my deliberative. Theology, the things that I was learning, mm, yeah, uh, had war with my embedded theology that real change took place, and I allowed for that to take place. You know, it wasn't until I opened myself up or, uh, to seeing that um, that was a different way of doing things, a different way of thinking. Yeah, um, that I realized in uh, stepping back and looking at the situation that hold on. What I've been taught might have not been the way that things actually are supposed to be, and perhaps I need to start looking at this individual relationship and me getting to know God for myself versus what people have given me about my God. Yeah, We see it in Scripture. We see it in Scripture. When you look at Abraham, Abraham, uh, he he, he taught his son, uh, Isaac, And and Isaac began to pray, and he prayed to his father, uh, prayed to the God of his father, Abraham. Uh, And it wasn't until Isaac experienced God for himself that he prayed to the God of, uh, to his God. The same thing happened when it came down to Jacob. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, if you look in the scripture, you'll see Jacob did the same thing. Jacob prayed to the God of Abraham and Isaac. 
until he had a, a real manifestation to take place between him and God, and God manifested God's self for him, that he was able to say, my God. You know, so it's not until those, your, your deliberative theology, the things that you've experienced, the things you've studied, the things that you've uh, dealt with, come into, come into, into conflict with those things that have been instilled in you from birth or from growing up or uh, from people talking to you uh, that you've, you've embraced. It isn't until that conflict takes place that you begin to see who you are authentically. Yes, I completely agree. And I think that's a big part of what this show is about, is trying to get into those moments and see what happened. And my hope is that, um, you know, at a minimum, help other people who listen to this show and are in those moments uh, know that it's it's okay and that it, on the other side is actually more intimacy with God, um, not less. Mm-hmm. Um so, but tell me, so growing up though, did you ever have an experience of kind of giving your life to, to Christ or something like that? So I, I actually preached my first sermon. I think I was eight years old. Uh, now, mind you, I can't say I knew everything about what I was doing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I didn't know the mechanics of preaching at that time. I just knew I had something on the inside of me telling me to speak up. Uh, I am actually a, a, a shy person. I'm, I'm not. I'm, a, I'm an introverted extrovert, meaning that I can deal with people. But I'm really naturally and authentically just an introverted person that yeah. really more or less likes to be to myself. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, you you didn't really have like a moment when you when you decided to follow the Lord. It was just kind of this is this is where we are, and and you kind of you followed well, that. Yeah, and that's okay. I, well, by the way, I, I did. I did. I preached my first sermon when I was eight, and then uh, as I grew up, and um, you know, uh, growing up, little boy, and, and hormones start taking over, and, and, and hormones, and and all kind of devil met whatever I could get into uh, sure. started being the, the thing to do for the day, and, and before you knew it, you know, I, I was questioning whether God really existed in the form that I knew God in, and I started searching. Uh, and so in that, uh, I, I can't say that I've always walked close with God. Or I've always done the right thing. I've always said the right thing. Um, and, and I ignored that calling up until my childhood pastor, who was also my uncle, um, Bishop J.T. Stroud, John Thomas Stroud, he died. And he had all, he had already, you know, basically spoken over my life and told me that I would be a preacher. And, and once he died, it was as if though God um, moved whatever barrier to get to me was moved, and, and God just started dealing with me heavy, man, heavy, mm-hmm. uh, and. and I don't, I'll tell anybody, and I'm pausing parenthetically here, uh, just to speak to the audience. No one can tell me God won't is a gentleman, and God just gonna God waits on you. And no, 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 no. God is inconvenient, and God doesn't wait on you. God won't what God won't what God want it. And so, I'm sitting there one day, and, and I'm and God's dealing with me. I've been dealing with me for a while, man. My uncle just died. And all of a sudden, I could not breathe. I physically could not breathe. I don't know if it was a panic attack or what it was, but I believe God actually seized my breath in that moment and told me, I have the power to take your life away. You're going to do what I want you to do. And from that day on, I started running. Now, it doesn't mean I hadn't made mistakes. It doesn't mean I ain't bumped my head. I hadn't torn my britches. Uh, to, uh, forgive me, I'm from the south, so if you hear me say riches, it's, just, I love it's it. a southern thing. That's baby. fantastic. It's a southern thing. That means I ain't torn the britches, man, but it, it does mean <laughs> that I hadn't let go of God's hand while doing it. You know, uh, I'm reminded of David and how the Bible says that David chased after God, God, and David was a man after God's own heart. That means David didn't sleep with the sheep. 
Right. But it does mean that David tried his best to make a, a amends after making that mistake. You know, uh, and and so my life is mirrored in the flaws of the of the models that I've I've seen and 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 scripture, and so I don't make any qualms, which which helps me uh, to lead with compassion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, to, and to be centered in love. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so I want to go back to um, your time when you went to school. So I'm wondering, yeah. like, is there a story around that time that kind of will give us a give us an insight into what that was like for you? So I, I, I'm going to tell the story, but I withhold names because I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> I don't want anybody to be offended. Uh, I'm sitting in class the very first day that uh, a seminary, right? Very first class, very first day. Um, I met the instructor before uh, outside of seminary, and and I knew she was a cool person and all, and very knowledgeable. And uh, she asked a question to me, man. She she uh, asked to the class and she said all the men in the class stand up right well she didn't ask the question she, she made the demand yeah. all the men all the men in the class stand, stand up and this woman stood up with her uh, uh, uh with the men and she asked the woman she said are you a man and she said yep and she said okay well thank you for joining us and right then, it was like all the stuff that I've been taught was challenged in that very moment, just in that moment. And I had to make up my mind whether or not I was going to continue to embrace my old thinking or was I going to open myself up to be challenged and stretched mm. in this new form of thinking. Wow. And, and, and it was right there, very first class, very first day that I decided that I was going to allow the seminary experience to shape and form this new theology for me. Wow. Yeah. That's a powerful, a powerful moment and probably uncomfortable, right? Oh, it was totally uncomfortable. <laughs> I, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't think I was the only one. I can only tell you about oh, my yeah. experience because it was my experience, but I don't think I was the only one that kind of squirmed in their feet when that took place. Yeah. Man, but again, it, and that, it, it challenged me and made me say, okay, you got one or two ways you can, you can shut down and let this and let this just, you know, play out and, and that's it. Or you can go ahead and embrace this, this new moment and see where it takes you. And I decided to embrace it and see where it mm. takes me. And here I am where I am today. Wow. Yeah. I think that's powerful. That's interesting. You made me think of this, um, moment that I had that was sort of similar in, in a way. Last year I went to, uh, you know, Ted, Ted has all these events around the country. And so in Denver, they had a TEDx event and, uh, I, I went to that. And one of the speakers was a transgender woman. who's a pastor here in town, I think. And, uh, I was, it, you know, had this, I sat there, we were, uh -huh. we were way up front and I sat there and I listened and I had to emotionally kind of, uh, resist the urge of everything I've been taught about, you know, how, how we should think about trans, you know, transgenderism and look at the uh -huh. person right in front of me and say, okay, uh -huh. this is a person and it doesn't matter whatever else is going on. God loves this person. That was a really interesting and formative experience for me as well. So I can relate to that. It's interesting. I think one place we've gotten off track is where we've made the politics of those kinds of things more important than the theology of those kind of things. Right. And the, and the, the, the theology of God's love for other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so there's a little, uh, a little aside, but thanks, thanks for sharing that experience. So what, um, you know, have you ever had an opportunity or have a time when you felt like God was kind of far away or distant or sort of that dark night of the soul experience? Yeah. I, I wonder Tell us one of those stories. If I be honest, if I be honest with you, I wonder what God is right now, man. 
Yeah. I really do. I we're given given everything that's going on right now, given the climate or the politics of the day, how we've lost sense of all morality, it feels like, and we've taken things that should be a moral issue and politicized them. Mm-hmm. I wonder where God is. You know, you can't really tell the difference between uh the corporation owners and, and uh, executives outside of, uh, of the pastors uh, because they're both speaking the same message of destruction. I wonder what God is. Yeah. I really do. I mean, that's, I can't be any realer than that, man. When, no. when I'm seeing, you know, uh, my black and brown brothers and sisters getting killed in the street by People that that have taken an oath to protect and and uh, and defend them, uh, and they're the ones that's taking their lives. And then when they when they stand to say, "Our lives matter," we say, "All lives matter." <laughs> it's just to say, you yeah. know, we gonna we gonna co-op your your whole argument or your whole yeah. There's something sick in the mind of of a society, man, that uh, that can put taking life over over giving life. There's there's something perverse about that. So yeah, I, I even now I'm wondering, well, God, where's God in this? Yeah, well, that's that's yeah, that's really really vulnerable. Thank you for that. You know, that man, this was such an interesting issue. It's and it's hard. This is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because. You know, it's tough. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a white suburban guy, right? My whole mm-hmm. life. So I don't I don't get those kinds of issues like like you would. Um and so like open that up for us a little bit. You know, what I see uh is you know, I see these videos on Facebook of people, you know, cops treating black kids badly. Um and then I want to know, like, well, what else happened? Like, you know, I, that's that's the question yeah. that I ask. Uh, and yet, well, I don't agree with the way that with the behavior either, right? From the so, there's a lot of conflict for people, you know, in our situation. It, just open that up for us a little bit, so we can understand better. Well, you all have been taught, uh, or some people, uh, forgive me. Some people, in particular, those who are generally uh, of European descendant, uh, descend uh, you are that are European descendant, and that are uh, typically white men uh, in suburbia have been taught that the police are there to protect you; they're there to serve you. Uh, and for us, you know. I can give you a case of my own self. When I was in high school and I first started driving, man, I'd get pulled over every single day wow. in my neighborhood. Every day. And it was always said, you fit the description of somebody we're looking for. When in all actuality, I did not I did fit the description because I was black. But you were looking for something. You weren't looking for somebody. You thought you were going to catch me doing something that I wasn't supposed to be doing. Um, luckily, in that time, you know, they just didn't catch me doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. So, hell, I was doing it. Excuse me. I was, <laughs> forgive <Right>. me. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, that is my experience with the police. So when I see the police, I'm not, I don't feel relief. I feel anxiety. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yep. So now when you go in and as a police officer, and I'm not, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm one amongst many. So when the police pull a person over of color, we not, we're not looking like, wow, I'm glad the police are here to help us. No, we like, oh, man, this, this might be my last time seeing this, this side of, uh, of creation. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And in a very real sense. Not not play play, but in a very real sense, it's not a thing of where we've been over dramatic. We're not oversensitive. You can't be oversensitive when you're seeing a uh, brother a uh, brother like Philando Castile who did everything that the police officer said, doing still was shot dead in his car, yeah. sitting in his car. 
You see what I'm saying? You can't be oversensitive when you got a Mike Brown who uh, has a, who laid dead in the streets two hours before they even took his body away, and his mama couldn't do nothing but see him. She couldn't even touch him. You you can't you you can't be oversensitive when you see a a a a female that has been pulled over by the police, and next thing you know, she's dead in jail. There, you can't. There's no way to be oversensitive when you see that. Right. So when we get what what our view, our uh, uh, relationship with the police department or with the with the uh, police uh, system in itself, it's it not one of of relief. It's one of anxiety. We're scared. We're 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 nervous. And so, you know, that that interaction goes that way. And and it's honestly. It's not up for us to solve that. It's up for them to solve that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will, so that's one of the th- reasons I'm I, I'm glad you you know shared that with us because you know I don't we we sometimes I know I'm guilty of this only seeing the world through my own experience right and uh-huh. it's much much harder to to look and to hear you know. I would interpret uh, being pulled over in one particular way, but I don't have the experience uh-huh. of being pulled over every day for however long, right? That then I right. would have a whole different kind of understanding about the police and, and be a lot more skeptical. Right. Yeah. So that insight is, is actually really helpful. I would like to see um, a couple of things. Like I wish that we would do a lot more listening um, partic- yeah. on both sides, but particularly on on my side, on the on the white suburban side, um, we need to hear because there are things that we don't understand that are happening. Um, that just because we don't notice them, you know. Um, and we've but we've good. But Eric, I tell you, man, in, in order to hear, you got to lean in. Yeah, you're right. That's the problem. Absolutely, we we That's have to say. We have to say, I want to hear and ask mm-hmm. the question. I've, in my experience and in my studies, white fragility is real. And, and in that, um, one of the things that, that uh, or a symptom of white fragility is white people don't like to talk about race. They don't like to talk about racial issues. Mm. And, and, and so uh, they don't really want to acknowledge race because that brings up the past, and the past doesn't look good for you all. Right. You all don't have a good a good track record. <laughs> I mean, that's just real. And, and, and there's this desire to make it to be that you all have this good track record, and you all are here to save the world. And and the truth be told, in history, if you study history you'll realize that that's just not the case. But until you acknowledge that and do the homework behind that, then you won't know it. I, I, I'm going to give you this case uh, in point, but, and, and it's not directly related, but it is the, uh, it's not the same, but it's directly related. I was looking at the uh, Brett Kavanaugh and uh, Dr. Ford uh, testimony on yesterday. And, um, uh, I was also looking on social media just because I like to look at social media and I've got some conservative people that I, I'm uh, attached with just as well as I've got some liberal people I'm attached with. Uh, I, I consider myself just to believe in truth, whether it be conservative or whether it be liberal, I just believe in truth. And, and uh, I, I noticed that I found myself having to be real mindful and real careful because I didn't want to come off or I didn't want my own experience to inform the way I was looking at this situation. Mm -hmm. For me, in my experience, I'm a black male. And though I have this strike that I have to overcome with being black, uh, I'm still a male. And so in that I have male privilege, I have to be anti-patriarchal 
because I've been taught and the system and society has uh, made me uh, believe that my male, uh, my maleness or my gender is supreme. Even if my skin color is, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, 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 I don't, I don't have full privileges that white men have, but I still have some privileges and I have to be mindful that my privileges that I have don't inform this situation. And I saw that a lot of people were, were agreeing because of their privilege. And it wasn't because of what they actually heard. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's right. I've been watching that whole thing. So we're recording this uh, probably on the day that they're going to vote Kavanaugh out of the committee. And um, that's what well, they're, they're doing it right now. Are they doing it? Yeah. That's, that's what I thought. I was just yeah, going right to look and see. Well, they're, they're, they're voting to see if they're going to move on, I think. Yeah. So I think they're he'll vote for the next phase. Right. So the, what will probably happen is they'll vote that he, um, uh, to vote him out of the uh, committee and then it'll go to the floor and they're saying that vote will be on Tuesday. So, mm-hmm. but, uh, mm-hmm. so that's kind of a, kind of a, a topic, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying about, about that, about you, about privilege. I think that's a, that's a word that, like you said, we don't really like, we kind of take offense to, um, but, and yet I think that it is, it is real and it's, it's hard to see if you're on the side of the privilege. And so it takes a little bit of effort um, right. And right. Which I think was your, was your and, point. And I said that to say, um, even when it comes down to our privileges with race, you, you have to be mindful and you have to be anti. It's not enough just to say, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a racist. Yeah. No. In fact, in fact, society and, and, uh, has set you up to where you are a racist. You have racial racist points of view. You have to be anti-racist in order to combat that. Yeah. Well, you know, I grew up in Iowa, for instance. So Iowa, you know, we, we were on, uh, the Northern side of the civil war. Right. Uh, and we Mm -hmm. would say, and certainly didn't have the kind of, uh, Jim Crow things going on, uh, there that you did in the South. And yet, there was, there's still that there's still a system of segregation implicit. That was, that was part of it. You know, my, um, I, I just love I love my grandfather. He was, he's a good man. Um, he, like he, he told me he, he grew up like on a farm, you know, farming community in, in Iowa, mm-hmm. never saw a right. black person until he went into the military. Like, crazy. Right. right. Like, wow. And I guess, you know, in a small community that was much more likely way, way back then. But uh, so I don't Man, blame he was him in Iowa. Y'all ain't got many black folks no, in Iowa. We don't. We don't. <laughs> but 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 even even there's still but there is still sort of the segregated culture, you know. And yeah. we, we'd like to think, oh well, because we don't ever have to deal with this. I guess this is where I was going because we don't ever have to deal mm-hmm. with interrace relations. That it's all fixed, and right. that's not the case. And you know, it took me a long time right. to figure that out. Um, right. And moving to other places that were a lot more diverse really sort of helped that. But, um, yeah, I, I, so I appreciate all of that. I think it's, it's an important message. Friends, I know it's hard to hear and to think about, um, but it's so worth just digging in. And if you ever have a question, um, one of the best things to do, uh, one is go make a friend if, if you don't, don't have any friends of other races, but also is pray and ask the Lord what he thinks about, and ask him to show you um, your particular biases, um, whether you think you have them right. or not. He will, and he is right. faithful to do that. He wants you to have his heart for other people. Um, so right. even if we're, even if this is an uncomfortable conversation, um, take it to him. That's that's always the right thing to do. I mean, even in that, and I apologize, but even even in that, uh, God speaks all the time. Yeah, God speaks. God speaks not only directly to us, but God speaks through other people. But if we don't listen, mm. if we don't listen, if we're dismissive of other people, then we'll miss God. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and Absolutely. Often, and oftentimes when, when we look and, and you, you make the, 
you make the victim the victimizer or you turn it around to make yourself the victim when, when somebody tells you that they're being victimized, then you've missed God. Right. You see what I'm yeah. saying? Because you've closed yourself off. Yeah, so that's my that's one of my big things. I think um, this Kavanaugh situation is really highlighting, right? Like we can't blame, right. we have to say, and this is, I've, I kind of settled on this view. I have to believe her. Like I can't, you know, I met Dr. Ford. I, well, I, I might have questioned what she's saying. Um, right. And, and I think we have to preserve the presumption of innocence until proven guilty because that is foundational Absolutely. for our society Absolutely. as well. And it's a tough tension Absolutely. to hold. Um, and, but, and yet it's the right one. And I think it's the moral one. It's the it's the best way to treat all the people. So, um, man, okay, wow. Well, Michael, I love getting into the deep end. This is a lot of fun. Um, but I want to hear more <laughs> about you because that's I want to hear about your experience. This is this is all related, of course. But I want to hear stories from your life. So, tell us how you ended up um, with um, the interfaith power and light, and then. Uh, particularly in Alabama. And then I want to talk about the environment a little bit, because I know that's a big deal for you as well. And it weaves in some of the topics we've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, even in that, uh, environmental racism is, is extremely real. Uh, I, I'm in, I'm in uh, Alabama, and I, do, I run Alabama Interface Power and Light, which covers the whole state of Alabama. But I'm also the environmental justice representative of the Southeast Conference of the United Church of Christ. And so I deal with uh, churches uh, throughout the Southeast and communities throughout the Southeast. And one thing that I found out that's indicative of communities throughout the Southeast is uh, we are uh, particular uh, African-American communities or communities of color and rural communities. Uh, we are extremely, extremely underserved when it comes down to uh, environmental uh, pollution uh, because uh, most industry is in the Southeast as far as your plants, as far as your uh, 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 various production facilities are concerned. They are typically uh, in the Southeast and they're typically somewhere centered around Communities that are, are uh, of color or uh, communities that are in rural areas that don't have the finances or the backing to be able to, to fight for themselves. You know, those with, with the financial backing would say, not in my backyard, and they would raise a, a big stink and have the, the backing to get in the support. To, to make sure that things that are unjust doesn't happen in their communities. Well, you've, you've got those that are of color and those that are in uh, rural communities that are in vulnerable, vulnerable communities that can't uh, fight the same way. And so these uh, industry comes into these communities and pollute these communities. They run down the property value. They, um, they they pollute the communities where people's health is in crisis, um, and and as a result, these people have to live in this toxic genocide uh, and have lived in toxic genocide for generations. Um, and again, it's indicative of what, of what happens in the southeast. Uh, one of uh, three three. There are three states in the Southeast that emit the most pollution in the entire nation. That would be Alabama, that would be uh, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Those are, and those three states are also the most impoverished states. Now, the industry is the wealthiest, but the states that they sit in are the most impoverished. Something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. Right now, I'm in. I'm dealing with a situation in North Birmingham. For over a hundred years, these people have been dealing, uh, been living under toxic genocide, rare forms of cancer. Children are dying early with cancer. Um, the houses are dilapidated. You can see the soot from the, the emission of the uh, 
uh, plants that are around the, these neighborhoods that are, and the soot is actually falling off the houses. The road, when you're going down the road, it looks like it's raining all the time because you have that glimmer. You know that glimmer that you have when there's that drizzle on the ground mm-hmm. and, 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 and the road roads are wet? Well, yeah. the road roads aren't wet. It's just that this soot, this, this toxicity that is being emitted from these, uh, from these factories or uh, uh, these steel plants are actually, uh, this soot is landing on the ground and just staying there. The people can't grow any fresh, fresh food because the soil is contaminated. They don't have uh, fresh food uh, groceries in their neighborhoods, uh, and the, the, the plants aren't giving anything back to the neighborhood in form of ensuring that they clean up the mess that they have. Not only have they done this, but they've actually, because the uh, EPA declared the fund a super fund site, they actually put out uh, uh, a campaign of misinformation to tell these people that they uh, that their land was okay, that if the uh, EPA came in to uh, test their site, they would they would take their houses, or they wouldn't give them any money for their houses. Not, I mean, never mind that these people paid for these houses and are still paying for these houses, and the property value has dropped by like twenty thousand dollars since they've had uh, purchased the house, and they're still paying full price for it. Yeah. You know, um, so you, you look at all this, man, and, and and it's crazy. But to go even further, one of the state reps that was over this particular community, the the industry, uh, uh, the plants, uh, ABC Coke and Drum and Coal, actually hired or, or uh, uh, bribed this this uh, state rep. Oliver Robinson, he's getting ready to get sentenced next month. They actually bribed him, uh, and, and he then, in turn, from what from what was said in the trial, he then, in turn, uh, bribed some of the uh, uh, community leaders and some of the faith leaders in that community to get to uh, put out information concerning misinformation concerning the EPA's involvement and in helping them to get this uh, get this situation sorted out. And, and come to find out he got he he pled guilty because he, he was bribed he was bribed and he was bribing. And then one of the vice presidents, executive vice president and one of the uh, lawyers uh, also uh, were found guilty and are getting ready to get sentenced, I believe, in November. So when you look at this and you look at this corruption and you look at what's happening, there's no way in the world that you being a person of faith and believing to be a servant of God wouldn't want to be involved in this, wouldn't want to be a part of trying to get this this situation straightened out. And for me, it's not about Republican. It's not about Democrat. It's not about conservative, liberal. It's not even about creating jobs. It's about whether it's right or wrong to continue to uh, commit toxic genocide on this people. Yeah, and that's a great example of things that we would just never know about, right? Unless somebody brought well, some sort of attention to it. And I know, I think right. you, you told me before, like you're having a hard time even getting attention to it because people don't really want to know about it. Well, it's it's not that people don't want to know. It's that the industry has such a lot on this sure that they are controlling the narratives that people in the next city over doesn't even know about this situation. Right, and they're affected by it just as much as anybody else. Well, we are all affected by it. Again, yeah. when you look at climate change, climate change happens because of a major factor in climate change is because of our action. It's because of these plants that are uh, emitting so much uh, pollution in the air and all these uh, all these gases in the air that's causing us to have such uh, dramatic hurricanes and and, and tornadoes and, and our weather is all topsy-turvy and haywire um, 
it's because of these this pollution. It's because of these these plants. It's because of uh, of uh, of these things that a great deal of this occurs, and it's throughout the southeast. But the problem I see is the southeast. Although all this is taking place in the southeast, the southeast is yet ignored, yet underfunded, and yet under resourced. Michael, so thanks so much for being here. Like, where can people find out more about all of this and more about you? You can go to www.alipl, A is an alpha, L is in Lima, P is in Paul, no, A is an alpha, L is in Lima, I as in Indica, P is in Paul, L is in Lima. Dot org, and that's Alabama Interface Power and Lights website. Or you can go to www.thepeoplesjusticecouncil.org. Yeah, th- these are important issues. Thank you for bringing them up and uh, sharing a little bit about it. And uh, I really appreciate that and your work. I've got links to everything that we talked about. Both those links will be in the Great. show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com, friends. Once again, I just want to uh, ask you, go ahead and uh, go out, check out these links, but then also go out to Apple Podcasts, leave a ratings or review, especially if you listen every week, friends. I'd love to hear from you. It encourages me a ton, but also um, it lets Apple know that, hey, people are listening to this podcast. We should let make it a little more visible so that uh, more people can find it. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you, sir.